Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Okay, welcome to the Border Wars podcast. We are the number one podcast in all the Americas, the only podcast that takes you beyond the border. And we are now deep into season two. If you haven't watched the previous episodes in Spanish, go ahead and click on our, subscribe on our YouTube channel, like the video because you will like this video, and then go ahead and share with your colleagues. Two, I have two very special friends and guests, and I could say colleagues now from the Heritage Foundation. But I want to, I want to contextualize this. I want to start this conversation a little bit because I'm a big believer in unity of effort. This, I think, is something that we're missing as conservatives. Uh, it's something we're certainly missing in Latin America. Um, I, you know, we're having this kind of authoritarian wave in the Western Hemisphere. And I say Western Hemisphere because we're having some of that here in the United States as well, which these two gentlemen know a lot about. Uh, but we're certainly seeing it south of the U.S. border. And I don't think of any radical leftist government that's come into power in Latin America without first dividing the right, splitting them one against another, fracturing. Uh, and I think that part of the, the reason that I think uh, this podcast, I think, is very special is because the effort that uh, Heritage Foundation has began in conjunction with the Center for Secure Free Society, in conjunction with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, in conjunction with many other institutions, is now to try to fix that, to bring it all back together. Um, so I'm here with, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you guys introduce yourselves a little bit, tell more about your background, but I wanna introduce you kind of from uh, things that I read about your bio that I thought are interesting. I'm gonna start with Simon. So Simon Hankinson, he is a senior research fellow at the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation. You have a career in foreign service, 23 years. I see all kinds of cities and capitals from Africa, Asia, no Latin America, but I do notice that you lived at one time in Miami, Florida. So that makes you Latin American specialist by default. Um, and then I also see you're originally from London, England. Is that right? So are you British? Right. Uh, well, I'm American now. American. Okay, there you go. Um, so Simon, tell us a little bit about yourself. And as you're telling us about yourself, Give us a little bit of your foray into Latin America space. I know it's not your primary focus of work, neither with your career or currently at Heritage, but you come at it from a specific angle, which I think is very unique um, and something that's needed more, especially as we're looking at the crisis on the U.S. southern border. Sure. Well, th thanks for inviting me today. I'm really interested to be talking about this topic. Uh, I started my, I've had 24 jobs, so I, I've done a lot of different things. I've driven cabs, I've done construction, I've worked in restaurants, uh, but my first uh, real job was, was, uh, teaching school. Um, oh, I was a lawyer before that. And I taught school in Miami, Florida, like you said, um, traveled quite a bit. I've been to Guatemala, Mexico, uh, Honduras for months at a time. So I have, you know, weak Spanish, but some appreciation at least of Central America and, and uh, quite a bit of, of Mexico. I joined the foreign service from Miami in 99. Uh, I've served in, in Africa, Asia, Europe, back here in, in the States and Washington. Um, and, Coming to the Heritage Foundation, which has been fantastic for just many reasons, um, I've been working on immigration, border security, a little bit of diplomacy, and uh, there's a massive overlap between what's going on in Latin America now, the, the disaster of Venezuela, for example, that's pushed out 7 million people um, in, into neighboring countries and up north, uh, what's happening in the Darien Gap, which mm. used to be this impassable you know, jungle and has now got paths in it, apparently, and pretty it's soon- the Darien Highway now. Yeah, there'll be a metro stop down there. <laughs> Um, it, it's, it really does intersect with what I'm doing. Uh, I hate to use the word intersect, intersectionality, but uh, what we're doing in, in the Border Security and Immigration Centers is trying to uh, get a grip uh, on this <coughs> unprecedented crisis and, and persuade uh, politicians to take it seriously. On the left, we're having zero uh, success at the moment. I'm afraid to say the Biden administration is locked into this open borders agenda. 
Um, uh, but I think we've made more headway with uh, getting the attention of uh, people in the, on the right and the center and, and just waking up ordinary Americans to the, the long-term consequences of what's going on in the border um, and, and getting to grips with what's happening in Latin America and these, these reasons why people are leaving their countries and not trying to build up their own societies, but flee anywhere they can get. Before, um, before I jump to my, something you said, right. There, I just want to just touch on that a little bit so far. So you've been looking at Latin America from the perspective of like, what's driving this massive amount of immigration that's coming to the U S on the border. That's overwhelming the capacity. What, what are you seeing right now? Like what, what are you learning so far uh, from those as the Biden administration would call root causes? Well, the root causes, I would say, have always been there. You're looking at uh, corruption. Latin America is no stranger to bad government on the left and the right. There have been very few successful sort of uh, democratic administrations, but there have been some. Um, So there's that. There's uh, the population has increased in many places beyond the capacity of the economy to absorb it. There just aren't enough jobs for the the people coming out of the job market every year. Uh, You've got violence in places like Nicaragua. Um, Venezuela, where they took, you know, I think they have the world's largest petroleum reserves. Um, they just completely tanked the economy through applied socialism, which seems to be the rule. Um, and so with all those factors combining, um, you, you add this one extra magic ingredient, which is the Biden administration's open, open doors. You know, the word is out. People have WhatsApp and Signal and all kinds of ways of finding out that whatever Secretary Mallorca says, uh, if you try to get into the United States, chances are you'll get to stay yeah. and you get to bring your family. So I think, uh, unfortunately that message has gone out. People are taking risks and, and crossing many are dying, but you know, more are making it through. Yeah. So in, in essence is the worst Latin American gets, the harder it becomes for our U S Southern border. And then the pool factors that are coming from this, whatever rhetoric comes out of the administration, but the, the real incentives that are on the border, whether it's the, uh, CPB one app or just anything that has to do with basically <laughs> My, it, uh, let me be careful how I say this, but I think it's essentially providing services to migrants, which, you know, you, you want to make sure that migrants are taken care of, but at the same time, you're, you got to be careful because you're providing a perverse incentive for more of them to come. And they all know that. And they're all seeing that, that that's a, a feasible entryway into the United States. And I travel the region quite a bit. I mean, pretty much every month I'm down there and this is very hundred percent true. I mean, they know that there's an option where all push comes to shove. If my country goes, you know, to the Venezuelan destructive route, that I can just go up to the U.S. southern border and I can get through. But let me let me turn to Mike Gonzalez. Mike, um, I'm, and I'm going to say your title, and you're going to have to correct me if I say it wrong, because I think it's named, it's a, it's a chaired fellow at the Heritage Foundation, the Angeles de Arredondo y Plurinus Unum, uh, out of many one, senior fellow for international engagement from the Heritage Foundation. You've been at Heritage for quite a while. I think I met you uh, years ago at the Heritage Foundation for 15 years now. But prior to that, you served in the Bush administration as a speechwriter for an SEC commissioner. You're also a speechwriter at the State Department. Uh, and then before that, you almost had another career, complete, complete other career as a journalist. Um, and one of the interesting things I saw in your bio that I didn't know uh, prior to today was one of your first mm-hmm. overseas, and maybe not if your first overseas assignment to Panama, you got detained and arrested by the Noriega dictatorship during that time. This is obviously before the invasion, uh, but I don't know if you could tell us a little bit about that. That's an interesting anecdote as well. So I'm still trying to get over the fact that Simon has had 24 jobs. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm twice his age and I've had, I think, six. I just counted them very, very quickly. Um, yeah, my first foreign assignment in 1987, I was a, a cub reporter for Agence France Presse. Uh, and I, they sent me to Panama and I was there for a month <coughs> and the, the Noriega, <coughs> this is in, in 88, a year after I've been at Agence France Press in Washington, DC. 
they arrested me and put me in a prison at Omar Torrijo Airport, uh, where amazingly enough, they put me and they threw me in <clears throat> with a lot of people that had been caught at the U.S. border. Mm. Uh, earlier that day, they had failed to pay the coyote or something, and they brought the Omar Torrijos was a clearinghouse. They were mostly Bolivians, oh. and they were going to be sent back. Mm. So I spent the night with them, talking to them. And then the next morning, they expelled me from uh, Panama. They put me in a but flight. But they detained you for what What grounds? <clears throat> so they did not like what I was writing. Even the guy who the, the magistrate that took me to um, said, technically, we're, he, he was honest enough to say, <clears throat> technically, you're here on a, on a businessman's visa. Um, and you're, you're not a businessman. That's the technicality. Okay, yeah. The reality is we don't like what you're writing. Okay. So <clears throat> that made my career... I went back to uh, to Washington and my bosses thought I was hot stuff because I had been arrested and kicked out of my first foreign assignment. And they said, well, where do you want to go now? And I uh, I said, well, you know, I, I looked at what they had to offer and the office in Hong Kong was pretty pretty busy. Uh, and I said, it was it was the editing house for all of Asia. And you, you, one would go from Hong Kong, cover stories all over Asia. So I said to myself, you know, I speak Spanish. My last name is Gonzalez. I speak French, passable Portuguese. I'm going to spend my whole career in Latin America. Why don't I just go to Hong Kong, add that to my resume, get, get the get summer wild oats. <clears throat> I, I, I ended up spending 10 years in Asia. Oh, wow. Um, eight years in Europe. And I never, after that, reported from Latin America again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you never know how life is going to turn out. Um, I, uh, I I like Latin America though. I like um, I like going there. I like the cultures. I'm, did, uh, did you grow up in Florida? No, no. Uh, I I grew up in Havana and Madrid. In Madrid, okay. And New York, Spain. Havana, okay. Madrid. I like to tell people I, I grew up under Castro, Franco, and Abraham Beam, who was the mayor <laughs> of New good. York Very in good. the early seventies. Um, and I gotta say, New York had me at hello. You know, mm. I uh, I loved Queens. Uh, within right away, I became one of those obnoxious New Yorkers who who did not understand why anybody why why didn't everybody live in New York? Yeah, I'm no longer that way, but yeah, I'm still yeah, a Yankee yeah. fan and a Giants fan. There you go. Some things die hard, and I go to New York. I was just there last week. I go there all the time. I'm very comfortable in New York. Um, <clears throat> I gotta say that you you said earlier because what is happening in Latin America uh, interests me greatly, and I don't I I see it from the perspective of somebody who uh, cares about my country, the United States, and what happens here. And <clears throat> I think what happens in Latin America never stays in Latin America. It, it, it comes here, and not necessarily, a lot of people listening to this will say, well, yeah, through immigration and drug trafficking. No, I don't mean it that way, although obviously that has an impact as well. I mean <clears throat> that there's a, a very strong nexus between our left and their left. And, and, and at this point, at this moment, they're both... A, not just a Marxist left, it's no longer, the, the left we're contending with, with in this country is no longer the Gephardt, uh, the Gephardt's Democratic Party. We're no longer discussing the, 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 the top marginal tax rate. Uh, <clears throat> we're discussing how we're going to be constituted as a country. So the constitution with a small C and, and, a, and, a, uh, and a cap C. Um, and I think that's the same thing in Latin America. Uh, in which you also have Marxists who are in power now in in practically all the main Country. countries, uh, Brazil, Venezuela, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, um, 
and Marxists will be in charge of, of Guatemala. Soon, Guatemala may say, well, people, it's a small country, 60 million people. Actually, Guatemala is the Serbia of Central America's Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. Guatemala is... It's a choke point, yeah. Is, but, but, but the cultural... Yeah. It's the cultural uh, base um, and the biggest country in Central America. So, so I, I see, and, and, and as I said, there's that nexus between uh, the... First, you have the four of the Sao Paulo. I'm sure we're going to get into yeah. it later, which is the, 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 the conference of all the big Marxists, leaders and, and opposition parties and individuals, uh, groups and NGOs in Latin America. But what people don't realize is that the, 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 the members of Black Lives Matter and the architects of Black Lives Matter interact with them. They have been yeah. invited to for the Sao Paulo uh, group uh, meetings, conferences. Yeah, they went to uh, Venezuela, I think, even as recently. Well, I mean, one of them, the one that's most internationally minded, Opal Tometi, uh, traveled to uh, to to uh, to Caracas and in fact brought uh, Maduro to Harlem and she also traveled to La Paz a, a trip that is that gets much less attention and met there with Evo Morales right. uh, and I think that that's was that's a key that's a key I think ninety nine percent of people don't know about that trip that, no nobody knows about that trip everybody knows about the trip to Caracas because she wrote a manifesto defending Venezuela's uh, um, direct democracy, you know, uh, uh, participatory democracy, which as we all know here, it's a sham concept, which which is really stands in opposition to representative democracy. And it's a way to get rid of checks and balances. So I like taking a look at all of this and also how it impacts Europe. I, I am fortunate enough to be able to write uh, at Heritage on all these issues uh, and which threaten directly our stability here in the United States. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to jump on one of those points because that trip to La Paz is interesting because I don't think people make this uh, correlation between the, in the United States when we had the BLM riots, I think it was the summer 2020. Yes. Uh, when they were pretty much right. destroying capital cities all throughout the country. Um, we saw something very similar to that the year before in Latin America. Yes. Right? But you don't have a, a BLM franchise, so to speak, with those letters and acronym in Latin America. Uh, you have indigenous <laughs> movements that have been right. radicalized very much the same way because the grievance of, um, you know, some uh, uh, population centers in Latin America is the 500 years of struggle from colonial right. independence and, and things like that. And that's the biggest talking point that Evo Morales from Bolivia has spoken about time and time again. And so he, there's a term that they call, that they've adopted in, in Bolivia and they've adopted it throughout Latin America. It's called Abia Yala, right? And Abia Yala, what it means is uh, land of the people, right? And it's actually a Kuna term from the Kuna Indians in Panama, and so uh, in Bolivia, they created the Abia Yala Foundation, which was then funded by the United Nations to basically have Evo Morales not just become the leader of the indigenous movements in Bolivia, but the leader of indigenous movements throughout the Americas, which brought him to Guatemala, to Mexico, and all the other countries that have indigenous leaders. I say that because I think that that was the parallel that many people missed, right? Why, why is that visit from uh, BLM to La Paz, Bolivia, so important? Is because they're connecting networks of indigenous movements that right. have been radicalized from domestic U.S. movements of, of African-Americans that have been radicalized and starting to try to connect them so that, it, as you mentioned, it will bleed into the United States, uh, the messaging. I don't know if you touch on that a little bit. It's, uh, well, I mean, if you talk to the left, the man who, who, who recruited and trained BLM founder Patrice Coulouris, his name is Eric Mann, a former member of the Weather Underground, spent time in prison for assault and battery. Uh, he recruited her and, and, and trained her for 10 years into Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism. He, he actually said in an interview with Venezuela's Telesur, 
going back to what you're yeah. saying, in 2000, 2015, um, he said, look, this is just a little division of labor that we have. Whether it's race or sex or climate, what we try to do is is get rid of the United States, you know, get rid of, 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 of the, uh, the, the, the white settler state, this oppressive, he calls the United States the most oppressive state in the world. Um, these are people who are, uh, you know, mind-bogglingly uh, crazy, um, but they, but they, they, they're also smart and they do a lot of ill. And, and uh, so here we have an obsession with race um, because of our history. You know, we have a lot of bad history with race. Nobody needs to recount it. We all know what it is. Um, in Latin America, they, they have race, but it's actually, it's not um, the black race, is is, is Native Americans. Yeah. And so they have a very strong indigenism, indigenismo. Um, and, and I think, and, and this is where you get the plurinational, the push for plurinational states um, that you had in with Morales in yeah. Bolivia, with Correa in Ecuador, definitely with with Chavez and then Maduro in Venezuela. No, they, they try to do this, remember, in Chile as well with the right. change in the constitution. The Chileans to, wouldn't have it. No, the Chileans actually, say, like, they had like a hangover where they had like this yeah. huge riot. They basically destroyed their subway station, destroyed a lot of the public institutions. Then they had this constitutional convention to rewrite the constitution and then woke up with a hangover. Like, what are we doing? Like, we don't want to get rid of everything that's been going well uh, in, in the country. Uh, and really what it is, what it, I think the Chileans realized, and I spoke with a lot of them during this process, was they realized it's a, it's a, it's a gross violation of the rule of law. Because it's unequal it justice. Basically, you have a justice that's applied for right. one group right. that's different than it's applied for another group, and that's going to fracture. It's the Ottoman Empire. Essentially. It worked for the Ottoman Empire, if you want to say it worked. Until it didn't. Uh, until it didn't, but it wouldn't work for us. And, and I don't think uh, the Ottomans really lived in freedom. This is true. So yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. Yeah, you, you want to add on something? There? I was going to say, or, or, or it's India. I mean, they only have to yeah. look at us to see that this idea of splitting people up into their component parts. And we were talking about four groups in the U.S. I think it was some, you know, OMB memo in like 1977 that just decided we're going to call right. everybody who speaks Spanish Hispanic. Even though, yeah. you know, Abel Morales and Ricky Ricardo have absolutely <laughs> nothing in common <laughs> except true, they yeah. both speak Spanish, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and Osama bin Laden is white. Uh, in that grouping. <laughs> right. And he doesn't have a lot in common with, you know, Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, so yeah. that stupid structure that we have now sets people up for either scholarships, preferential treatment or not. And I think mirroring that in any yeah. other country would be a huge mistake. You, you just reminded me, Sam, I, don't, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to make this about this issue, but I mean, the Latinx term, right? What do you guys make of that? Because I never really understood it. It, it, it translates in Spanish into the worst thing possible, Latin X. And an X in Latin America is like a nobody. It's an X, like whatever, you know? And I was like, who is the brainchild that this is? Like, I got it, I got it. We're going to call them a bunch of nobodies. And it's a Latin X. I don't like if you I, I like the left using it because it's so off-putting. Yeah. It's so offensive to to actual Americans of, of Latin American descent that it actually turns them off and makes them consider conservative policies. Just what I like. That's true. So, it was so a, I actually, I never discouraged a left from using the yeah. term Latinx. More, it, more of it, please. It was a unifying <laughs> term, honestly, because even people that were agnostic or even some lefts, moderate leftist Latin Americans were like, what, what is this? Like, it's like it, NPR is so dumb. Shh, don't tell NPR. Latinx is a good term, NPR. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's kind of like this, uh, you know, this language that's spread out from the campuses we call women vagina owners or uterus havers. I mean, you know. What? In, what? In, what? I missed that one. You not heard this? No, no. 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 You, you don't talk about men and women. Like you talk about pregnant people, right. testicle havers, vagina owners, womb right. havers. And you ask any woman 
And they just look at you like, are you, I mean, my grandmother, my mother, that they'd vote on that. You know, yeah, that is insulting yeah, yeah, yeah. to them. So uh, yeah, use that language more. That's crazy. <laughs> so, so one of the things, I don't think I've seen you guys since we were all in Miami. Uh, I've been traveling a lot and we all have very busy schedules, but not too long ago, we were in Miami, Florida for a very spe- specific purpose. And I want to turn to you, Simon, because you, you quarterback this meeting a lot. And it was basically a, a meeting of the minds of Latin American conservative leaders from all walks of life, political, business, civil society, think tanks, and uh, also uh, representatives of conservative organizations here in the United States. Uh, we called it the, Carvalho, the inaugural Carvalho Dialogue of the Americas. And, and we had a statement that's put out. I think you wrote a really good article in National Review, basically outlining a little bit of the conversation that we had in Miami. So the, the, the meeting was uh, off the records where we can't attribute to what people said at the meeting, but we could talk about what the meeting was about. Uh, tell us about how you guys came to this meeting. And for me, and I said this at the meeting, I'll say it right now, public with all the viewers and listeners that to me, it was like a dream come true because I've been working in Latin America for 15 years and it's not, not anyone that's worked Latin America for a long time knows that you, all you get is a bunch of infighting. You got this person and fighting with that person, that political party talking about, about that place and all kind of relatively on the same side. And I felt like an effort to kind of bring everyone together, not that we're going to all agree on everything and we didn't, but we're going to have some sense of a unifying element to say that we're all kind of fighting the same forces, uh, both here in the United States and in Latin America. Tell us about the Carvalho Dialogue. How did that come about? How do we get to Miami uh, in July? Sure. I, I think it, it was the, the philosophy that, that inspired it was uh, one that there were, there were no organizing sort of, there were organizing principles, but no organizing body uh, on the conservative side. Whereas the left, and we were just talking about the Florida Sao Paulo, this, this uh, Castro Lula da Silva thing where it, it follows in the heels of the communist international yeah. going right back to the revolution where it was always about destroying nation states and having one world globalist government. Conservatives tend to, you know, each one runs their own show. Each country has a completely Maximum individualist. Is what yeah, we well, we are individualists <laughs> yeah. by nature. You know, yeah. We believe in the individual yeah. and then the agency of, of the individual, but we also share uh, a lot of problems that we, we our, be, our speech is being suppressed. Um, socialists are trying to take over the economy and get rid of, of private enterprise. They're letting in uh, China and Iran and, and, and Russia uh, in, in a way that is detrimental to our interests. And uh, so Jim Carafano, who's uh, our vice president over at Heritage, had met with a lot of people from all over the world uh, and many from Latin America who were sort of lamenting that there wasn't any place that we could get together and kind of exchange ideas and and you know, collectively fight in favor of our values. So we put together the first conference. We had uh, about 40 people from all over Latin America and, and the U.S. And we really did find that there was a lot of commonalities, and a lot of common ground and things where we could help each other. Yeah, I was actually going to invite Jim to, to to the podcast to talk about it. But he's, he's actually, I think, traveling right he's now. Traveling. <laughs> he's traveling. Jim's always traveling. That's that's Jim. Jim's a man of international, um, um, international uh, work. And um, so... What I, what I took away from the Miami meeting was, among, among many things, but and I'm going to read some of the points that, that we all had in common that we kind of drafted this statement. But what I really took away from the Miami meeting was this kind of effort, this, this sense of having a home, right? And, and Latin Americans are very much like this. They call it el hogar. Like, just they, want, like, they like to always to go home. They always have a kind of a, a, like a, a community sense in, in terms of their families. And um, we had this period of time, in about a decade or so, or they could, some people call it the conservative wave. I don't think that all the presidents were very conservative, but they were right of center presidents that were U.S. friendly, 
that came into power. This is after the pink tide that took place during the first de decade of the 21st century. That's when the, all the Bolivarians, the right. socialists came into power. <coughs> so there was a reaction from the Latin American voting public. They said, you know, we were like, Venezuela was already on the decline. They were like, we need to get away from that. They moved in and they voted in, you know, conservative-ish or US friendly, market friendly presidents. But none of them had a real strategic ally in the United States. Most of them was during the Obama administration, but even during the Trump administration, they might have had an alliance with the Trump White House. But when they came to Washington, they really didn't have a place to go. The Heritage Foundation was there, but they didn't have like an infrastructure. On the think tank side, um, there's at least three, maybe four full-time think tanks that to Latin America on the left. Um, as you mentioned, the university, the academy is pretty much dominated by leftist professors. So the leftist presidents in Latin America often always had a way to legitimize themselves by civil society and academic networks in the United States. The right of center presidents did not. So I think that the, my big takeaway was that I think that for political leaders that are going to come into the future, even maybe very soon into the future, uh, thinking about Argentina, they need to have a place in Washington that they could call their home. Like, like this is our safe space. We're going to come to Washington, D.C. We're not just going to have to talk to X, Y, and Z think tank. We're going to actually be able to go to a place where we're going to talk substantially about what we're facing in our country and know that we're not going to be sabotaged. And that was my main takeaway. I'm going to read some of the points that were drafted in terms of the statement that, that we collectively all uh, put <laughs> together. And then I'm going to throw it back to you guys. I'll start with Mike and then we'll go to Simon. We'll throw it back to you guys and you just pick out whatever one of those uh, seven statements uh, that or uh, seven points that we kind of collectively thought were, or were some of the biggest challenges in the region. And then you could just expand on, on any of them. Uh, the first was rising crime, violence, and drug trafficking. I think that's very evident. Uh, the second was radical woke U.S. policies. The third was weaponized immigration. The fourth was corrosive foreign influences. That's Russia, China, and Iran. The fifth was persistent corruption. The sixth was silencing dissent. And then the seventh was politicized NGOs, uh, NGOs that are doing more political warfare than anything else. Which one of those caught you guys the most uh, during the conversations in Miami and even just during your work up until today? Well, they're all so important, it's difficult to pick one or two. But first, I briefly want to say Simon is, is being very modest. He actually organized a very good meeting. I, did. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize, I, I, I was surprised by how well that meeting went. We had elected leaders there. And I think to just go back very briefly, one of the reasons why conservatives have traditionally not reached out Cross borders very well. It's because by nature, conservatives, we are about conserving traditions and norms in religions and philosophies that are very much nation-based, that are people-based. Um, what what a, a conservative in America or even or Texas wants to conserve is very different from what a Pakistani conservative. Uh, but right now we're facing, or, or Portuguese or a Peruvian conservative, but right now we're facing a common enemy, um, just as we did during the Cold War. In the Cold War, we were able to to gel together under NATO uh, and face the Soviet threat or the Chinese threat. Uh, now we're facing a, a woke threat uh, that is in many cases, in all cases, I think is domestic as well as international. So I think to me, that is the most important thing that came up because of the, as you alluded to this before, the fact that the blueprint for our 2020 BLM riots, which was the costliest riots we have ever had in this country and which led to a 30% jump in the murder rate in this country. Uh, and even before 2020, between the, the creation of BLM and, and, and 2020, that is seven years between 13 and, and 2020, we had an additional 3,000 murders, at least 
that happened in cities where BLM rioted or protested because of police pulling back. That's a lot of people who met a very violent end. Uh, and, and as you said, the year prior to 2020, you had in Chile something very similar in, in, in 2019 in which protests organized by bots, by social media, most of them coming from Venezuela and Cuba, uh, caused a, a such instability and the government was not up to it. The government of, of, of Pineda was not, he was not uh, up to the measure. And of course, uh, that caused a great deal of dissatisfaction and Chileans voted after that uh, for a different leader, a Marxist leader in, in Boric. So I think that to me is, is was the, one of the most important things. What was the sub, can you, can you read me the other six? Yeah. There was another one that... Well, there was uh, rising crime and violence, radical woke use policies, weaponized immigration, corrosive foreign influence, uh, persistent corruption, silencing dissent in politicized NGOs. The, the, the NGO is also a, a key thing uh, that you get more in Latin America. Here we don't have NGOs dictating how we live, but we do have a lot of um, a lot of conferences of foreign origin, like the 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 the, uh, the, the social. The, the 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 social economic for the social yeah. forum the world social forum left roots uh, uh, you know liberation road a lot of these groups that have a lot of foreign influence that do, do destabilize us you no know, where I when I started really seeing this NGO concept and I remember when we were discussing the statement I kind of was putting that in there it it, it cross it cuts across many levels it cuts across uh, foreign aid it cuts across um, elections. Right. But the, where I saw it, and I think where it impacted me the most, and, and I want to uh, talk to you, Simon, about this is, uh, on the immigration, on immigration. So I, you know, I think I've, oh, I said this in the conference, in the, in the Miami meeting, but I have other presentations where I've, I've elaborated on this. Um, I was in Guatemala during the caravans when that began in 2018, it was October, 2018. Yes. And that was crazy because it went from 180 Hondurans that crossed on October, I think it was October 12th to uh, 7,000 by October 20th, right? Like that's not normal. Like not, like anyone that's even held a concert or a conference knows it's hard to get 7,000 people at the same place moving in the right direction at the same time. So it was clear that this wasn't organic, uh, although the media had a narrative. All the media, international press went down there and they're all talking about the poor, deported migrants, the humanitarian concerns, and this bad Guatemalan government that's not uh, enforcing their borders and just like being harsh on the migrants. Well, when I went to look at there, what I really, what really caught my attention were the NGOs because it was a, uh, well, let me say that there were some NGOs that were just doing humanitarian work is what they do, but there were some that had political messaging. I mean, they had everything from scripts that they were giving to the migrants to say, memorize this, read this if a camera comes on you, to money that they were giving to some of, some of them, to transportation that they were providing to others. And uh, one of the ones that really caught my attention was the one from Honduras itself. It was called Pueblo Sin Fronteras. And that's a, a Spanish, for those who don't speak Spanish, it means open borders, based people without borders. And that NGO, we started to dig really deep into it. And what we found out was they were apolitical because they were created by a political network in the country, a network that's now in power inside the country. It's called the Libre uh, Party. Uh, former president, a very defunct former president that got ousted named uh, Mel Zelaya, was kind of or orchestrating, organizing this. But they also received money from Venezuela. Right. And, and so I think right. that was the big impetus there where this was a politicized NGO that wasn't working for humanitarian concerns, was actually taking advantage and manipulating the migrants. They were vulnerable by definition. 
and using them as sort of weapons to basically create a narrative of open borders from the Honduran Guatemalan border all the way to the U.S. southern border. Um, I want to jump into you, Simon, a little bit because is that that I'm sure that's an area of concern for you and what you're looking at. Or how do you see these NGOs with this open border rhetoric that's been spreading all throughout the Americas? Well, I think NGOs are are doing extremely well out of the open borders. They're making millions of dollars off government contracts. You know, they're not just raising money from you know do-gooders in in the U.S. and elsewhere. They're actually getting billions of federal dollars. Funneled down through FEMA grants. I mean, I think $108 million went to New York City. money. Yeah, there's like $300 million went to uh, various NGOs to house, feed, and and transport transport people off the border. So they bring them in, and I call the Mallorca's migration machine. It's it's a giant processing enterprise. Instead of trying to do what they're supposed to do, which is deter illegal aliens from crossing in, detain them if they make it in, and then deport them if they don't qualify for any kind of protection. They bring them in, they process them as fast as possible, send them off to you know, tent cities run by NGOs and buy them a ticket anywhere they want you, They want to go. And I've seen them in airports holding a little piece of paper and it's an arrest warrant essentially from INS or uh, DHS now saying, you know, please show up uh, at court at some point. Some of them just say, please show up to ICE whenever you have a chance. Thanks so much. <laughs> and they're allowed to travel with this document, this flimsy piece of paper that may not have their correct name. It may not have their correct date of birth. Uh, it may not have their correct country of origin. And it certainly doesn't have any uh, clue who they are, what their criminal record is, what their history is. Uh, so yeah, uh, NGOs are, are doing really well. And the, the other group that's doing really well or groups are, are the cartels. Yeah. Um, because the drugs, you know, there are two separate points here, but drugs- uh, crime and 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 migrants are, are all intricately connected because uh, if you want to get through Mexico or the Darien Gap, uh, chances are you're going to have to pay somebody off. Mm. And these cartels, they're not, they'll smuggle, you know, they don't care if it, it, it'd be gasoline if that was highly taxed or cigarettes. They're only smuggling drugs because that's what makes them money. And if, if they can smuggle people and make more money, they'll do that. And so they have done, uh, there are swaths of Mexico. I mean, percentages is probably foolish to try to, to guess, but swaths of Mexico that AMLO has basically given up to the cartels just said, yeah, I'm just not going to go there. Um, and they run the place. They control a lot of the borderlands and they get to decide who goes through and they get their cut. No, that's, and that's an important point because I initially, when this caravan thing happened in 2018, the cartels weren't, didn't like it initially because it was putting too much spotlight on the border and they were trying to be clandestine and move their drugs very uh, low profile. But then they adapted and they figured it out that, wow, there's a whole nother market here that we could tap into, which is human smuggling. Uh, and then, you know, the the cousin of human smuggling, which is human trafficking, which is an economic crime that's on the border, sex trafficking and others. But they allow them to diversify the revenue stream. And human smuggling has become a booming business in the defense lexicon. We call this human smuggling facilitators, which are basically middlemen that in oftentimes often travel agencies that essentially uh, work with the drug cartel work with the tourism industry and work with local governments to essentially arrange the, the movement of mass amounts of people from one destination to another destination. That's why people are asking me a lot of times, like, why is Cancun all of a sudden become this huge violent area when it's, you know, Cancun, right? right? Spring right. break, right? I think like, because of the tourism industry in Cancun got in bed with the drug cartels for human smuggling. And all of a sudden now you have all kinds of illicit enterprise taking over what used to be the popular spring break destination for most U.S. college uh, students. Um, and, I think that there's a lot of things here that we can plug away, but if I were to ask you something, you know, I haven't seen Latin America as bad as I've seen it today. I just came back from a couple of countries in South America and each country I get to, I get a little bit more alarmed. It's how bad things are going. We just had a, a political assassination of a presidential candidate in one country in Ecuador. 
uh, we having another country where essentially they are figuring out how to fracture their civil society into like 10,000 different pieces. Uh, and then you have the dictatorships of the region, which is multiplying. We just used to have Cuba back in the day in the Cold War. Now we have Venezuela and then we have Nicaragua, we argue Bolivia. But what would you say is the point to the one thing? And I'm going to go to Mike first with this. What is the w worst thing that you're seeing in Latin America? And do you share this diagnosis that it's, I mean, you've been around much longer than I have. Have you seen, is, have you seen it this bad before? Well, it's different. Uh, before uh, 1990, before the creation of the Foro de Sao Paulo, you had Marxism with bullets. You had Castro, who really is the Cuba's the snakehead of this whole push, pushing Marxism in Latin America, uh, creating all these terrorist groups in the uh, Montoneros, the Tupac Amaru's uh, in, in South America, you know, Che Guevara famously dies in Bolivia. And then you have Castro fun funneling money and, and arms to the Farabundo Marti in, in El Salvador and to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. But they all fail. They all fail to gain power. Cuba is the only place in Latin America where Marxists, communists have taken over with guns. Uh, and then in 1990, the penny drops. Uh, Lula... Uh, reads Gramsci, he realizes all of a sudden we, we can get elected. All we have to do is, is hide the fact that we're Marxists and run as the anti-graft, anti-corruption candidate, as the populist, as the reformist. Somebody's going to reform. And then once you get in, you, 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 you try to get a majority in the Congress, uh, and then you reform the Constitution. You have called Constitutional Assembly. You change the nature of the country. And then that's it. All the, you know, you get rid of checks and balances and it's very difficult to get rid of these Marxist leaders. Uh, Bolivia tried uh, with uh, getting rid of Evo Morales for a while, but we have Arce, who's really a proxy. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I don't know what's going to happen in Ecuador, but I don't, I, I don't think it augurs well. Um, and then You were talking about Arevalo before. Why don't you expand a little bit on, on Guatemala? Because that was one still... It was I, the same thing. I mean, he, 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 Arevalo, the, the, the conservative... First of all, the conservative candidate who would have won was disqualified. We still don't know, don't really understand how that happened. And then the conservative vote was really dispersed. Yeah. And you had- a, They disqualified three candidates, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you had uh, Arevalo, the man who eventually won. So he, he, he made it past this, the first round in June, but the first round, he made it with the lowest amount of support of any candidate yeah. in Guatemala history, 11%. Mm. 11% voted for him in the first round, but he was the second highest vote getter. The first one was, was, uh, was Torres, Sandra Torres, who really does have a ceiling of like 40%. Mm. Uh, she's lost now three times. Yeah. She got 37%, I think, this time. Uh, Arevalo really ran the clock. You know, he beat her by 20 points in the second round. And he, he presented himself as, 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 as the anti-corrupt, uh, anti-corruption reformer. The same way that that Chavez was instructed to do so when he ran yeah, in '98. That's a good point. The same way that Morales ran uh, when he ran, I think, 2005, right in Bolivia. Uh, yeah, correct. Correa in Ecuador. This is the first pink wave. Yeah. They all did the same thing. It's the same model. They've been advised by the same Spanish consultants, the same the same academic consultants um, uh, who are still advising. You know, there's they, a an organization based in Quito. Uh, which is which was founded by communist uh, academic uh, consultants from Spain, uh, and I I don't know whether they advised you and I kind of looked at it whether they were advising Arevalo or not, but they were certainly very praiseful yeah. of Arevalo. 
they were very supportive of Arevalo, Selag was, and they definitely advised uh, Petro. Yeah. They advised Petro, and in one of the, the founders of Selag, uh, Monedero, uh, Juan Carlos Monedero, was with them the whole day, the, the day of the election, in, in, in June of 2022, right? The day of the election was yeah, yeah, yeah. June 19th, 2022, yeah. I believe. And he First was, round. He was with them when he won, uh, finally, in the, uh, the, uh, the, the stadium in Bogota. So the, 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 the connection here is very strongly. They have very good consultants who, who convinced them, and they're no longer winning with bullets, they're winning with ballots. Yeah. Let's be clear about this. Yeah. They're being elected. Yeah. They're being elected. At least once. At least once, yeah. yeah. But and, and, and fraudulent, you can say, was well, it's, it's a fraudulent election because they're not really running as who they are. Mm. You know, they asked Petro, are you still a Marxist? Uh, and, and, and El País did this Spanish newspaper, and he gave an answer, which uh, even El País, which is a socialist paper, said it was a, a, a scurrilous answer because he said, well, many things have happened since I call myself a Marxist. Now I don't believe in bullets anymore. Of course he doesn't. Because yeah. he, he realized ballots will get him there. He was a guerrilla. He was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. He was a member of M19, a terrorist Marxist group. He epitomizes this, this idea that you no longer have to be a terrorist. You can get elected. We have somebody like that here in the United States. In, that, in the United States, his name is Bill Ayers. Yeah. Bill Ayers was a terrorist with the weather on the ground. The husband of a terrorist, Bernardine Dorn. The weather on the ground did not achieve what it wanted to achieve. So, excuse me. So what did Bill Ayers do when he come out? He comes out uh, from underground in, in, in 1990. He gets a PhD in education. And he's now seen as an educational reformer. Yeah. As Sol Stern said, to call Bill, Bill Ayers an educational reformer is like calling Stalin an agricultural reformer. <laughs> yeah. But, but so we have our, our Gustavo Petro is Bill Ayers who introduces Barack Obama to the political world in the late nineties in Chicago. Yeah. And so, and I think a couple of things that you said there, Mike, um, particularly with Petro and but kind of this process, right? So some people call this authoritarian learning, right? They kind of learn from one another right. and they start to apply the same tactics and protocols to be able to, you know, win one time and then right. change the rules and then figure out how to perpetuate into power. But uh, I think one of the things that we're starting to see now, you know, there, there are the classic dictatorships, uh, the Nicaragua, the Ortegas in Nicaragua, right. the, the, the Castro's now Diaz-Canel in Cuba that are you know, the longest one in Maduro. But we're seeing now this element where conflict seems to be the order of the day. It's not just about perpetuating into power. It's about pushing forth uh, more, uh, if you call it revolution, that's their term, but you really just pushing forth transformation, a fundamental transformation. I, I just came back from Colombia. One of the things that struck me about that was, you know, Petro's been a disaster, right? In one year, his popularity went from, he got elected to he's <laughs> sloping down uh, that uh, um, public opinion polls uh, very rapidly. But then the question is, and we saw this with Pedro Castillo in Peru, and the question is, is this because they're incredibly incompetent, but then they still win at some point, right? Or is this because they're actually now being used as kind of puppets to be able to create uh, all kinds of elements of change? And, and so I'll make the argument on Castillo, and then I'll get your reaction. So Castillo obviously was incompetent. That's without a doubt. He was, he was a union leader. Uh, uh, he was never a political leader. He never governed. He never did anything really on, in, in, in terms of actually being in charge of something that has to produce results. But in essence, I always argued that he accomplished his goal and maybe not his goal per se, but the goal of the people that put him into power in the first place. Cause he was not, he was another one that came out of nowhere. No one really knew who he was. And all of a sudden he's the president of the country, but he, what did he accomplish? He accomplished more increased polarization between the North and the South he accomplished the unifying of the Southern indigenous separatist movements of the country. 
he accomplished a radical, uh, basically kind of a radical rhetoric that's being starting to take over inside the country. And now he's accomplished getting certain elements of the right to align with certain elements of the left against what they call in Peru, the caviares, which are the establishment, the elites of the country. And the result of that is the potential fracturing of civil conflict in Peru, either go as bad of a civil war. I don't know if it's going to go that bad, but there's elements now they're talking about country fracturing into different parts. I just get your reaction. Well, because the left thrives on grievances. Yeah. Uh, the left, uh, it's still the, it's still really called Marxist play, playbook mm. of having a, 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 you know, a dialectic, an opposition between classes, an oppressive class and an oppressor class. And in, in Karl Marx's day, he presented as economic classes, the bourgeoisie and the yeah. proletariat. That didn't work because the worker really wanted to improve the, his condition on the factory floor. He did not want revolution. The German communists and the Italian communists understood this in the 1920s. And they very quickly switched to race, uh, which is which is immutable. Mm. You know, you can change your socioeconomic status and one does in capitalism. I have gone myself, you know, I've changed my socioeconomic status many times in my life. Um but one thing you cannot change, things you cannot change, your race, your, your, your national origin, and get ready for this one, you cannot change your sex. Your gender. Yeah. So, so, so these are immutable characteristics. If you're looking for a, a revolutionary agency, it's better to place it in immutable characteristics than on social classes. Mm. So let, let me pivot back to Simon a little bit. So we, we have the kind of cultural phenomenon that's happening. And, and I would say that we are also seeing a wake up in Latin America. And this, I think, was representative in, in the Miami meeting, which there's certain elements of Latin America that are now taking that cultural battle on themselves, right? And, and we had some of those uh, individuals that were represented in Miami. Well, let me push back. Uh, let me push back. Let me, let me pivot to you, Simon, about the border again, because uh, I think so. <laughs> One of the things that me and you have discussed a lot about is, you know, the, the problems that are happening at the U.S. southern border uh, obviously extend beyond the border. Uh, and the first country in there is Mexico. And AMLO, you know, has been looked at for some as kind of just kind of a, you know, a, a leader inside Mexico, political leader, president, um, moving into election. But I've always looked at him as a node within a network because AMLO has tried, much like many other kids, tried to win presidency many times, lost many times, third time's the charm. He finally got it through. Um, and, but he was only enabled to win by aligning himself with his network because had that network abandoned him or, or distanced himself from them, he probably would never become president in the first place. Um, is that something that you're now taking away from the work that you're doing now that AMLO Mexico is now part of this bigger project that's happening throughout the region? It's not just U.S.-Mexico relations, uh, in, in its traditional sense. Well, it, it strikes me, and I'm nowhere near the expert on Latin America that you guys are. Yeah, I, I learned a lot at the conference. I'm learning more today. But it strikes me that as, as a historian with a general grasp of the way things work, that the, the future of the United States it seems to be Latin America instead of the other way around. We always used to think, well, there's progress. These countries are going to develop. They're going to get democracy. They're going to get everything we have. And they're going to look more like the U.S. They're look more like us. And what's actually happening is the exact opposite. You know, we're getting censorship. We're getting socialism. We're getting authoritarianism. We're getting inflation, right? And that thing you described, the phenomenon where you win one election and then change the rules so you keep power, arguably, and I'm not saying that uh, yeah. either side is free of this, but all of the gerrymandering yeah. and the, you know, the vote, the idea of uh, that, that any attempt to make sure that people have an ID to vote and that they can't be... Uh, um, you know, preached to while they're in line is considered to be fascist. You're, you're preventing, you know, minorities from voting. Uh, that's very much part of that playbook. We win an election and then we're locked in forever. There was a book came out in like 2004 called, you know, the, the coming permanent democratic majority. I forget the exact title, 
But the, the philosophy was uh, everybody who comes in from Latin America in particular is going to vote Democrat. So eventually this country will be a coalition of uh, interest groups. It'll be the blacks, the Hispanics, and, and you know, whatever, liberal women. I forgot what the exact combination was. And then we'll never lose an election again. Well, it turns out not to be that easy because uh, you can't put all the Hispanics in one bucket and assume they're going to do one thing. They have their own interests and, and divergent op- opinions as well. Uh, but that was the idea. So this open borders that we have now is part of that whole philosophy. It's part of the globalist philosophy that there shouldn't be nations. There shouldn't be borders. You shouldn't uh, be able to tell someone that they can't. Property is theft, right? Yeah. Anybody could come and live anywhere they want. Um, so unfortunately, this this phenomenon that maybe, I wouldn't say it started in Latin America, but yeah. it certainly caught fire there in various <laughs> places, including uh, Cuba, probably at the extreme, yeah. uh, is coming home to us. That, that's a great point. And I think, and I never really looked at it that way, right? But we've, for decades, the U.S. foreign policy on Latin America has been a, a one of emulation, right? Look at how good things are in the United States. If you adopt these democratic principles or advocate on human rights or just whatever policies we would push forward, then you will become more like us. And it's somehow backfired to where we're starting to like reform ourselves to become more in line with some of the banana republic politics that have happened over centuries inside Latin America. And, and that's interesting because Latin Americans are seeing that and, and they saw things, um, even the way we've handled our elections, they've seen uh, the way we've handled uh, censorship in this country. They've seen, uh, well, they're seeing what's going on with President Trump today. And they're like, oh, we know that. We've seen that before. Yeah. That's very familiar. You know, you lock up a, uh, a political candidate or you or you basically shut somebody off from uh, the media or from the press. And so the, what I worry about is I feel like they're starting to lose respect for the United States. And, and I don't mean it from a very much from a kind of like a superficial respect, but almost like a fear. And, and, and why I say that, because, you know, my, my parents are immigrants. I think the thing that people sometimes overlook about why people come to the United States, and I'll say this from Latin America, I can't say the whole world, but I, I know from the Latin American perspective, it wasn't always just jobs and opportunities. That's always a part of it, but it's really this sense of order, law and order. Because uh, you can find jobs and opportunities. You can work for a cartel as <laughs> a job, as an opportunity, but you don't always get a fair shake and you definitely won't get one with the cartel. And so they always had this notion that if I come to the United States, it doesn't matter my surname, it doesn't matter my uh, economic background, it doesn't matter what part of the country I live, I always have at least a chance to do something better. But they're starting to lose that and then they're starting to think that the United States, and this, I've heard this many times, it's like, oh, you guys are just as corrupt as we are, maybe worse, you know? So that symbolism of, you know, the shiny, shiny city on the hill, I think that is something that's allowed the United States to be kind of become this kind of great example and hope for the world that's starting to change. What would you attribute that to? Is that just bad U.S. policies? Is that foreign influences that are coming and corroding our, our mentality? How, how do you see this? I, I think it's entirely uh, man-made. I, I, you know, man is, is a sinner. We're all the same. There's no more corruption in the hearts of Latin Americans or Africans than there is in, in yeah. Uh, you know, Englishmen or Frenchmen. If you go back to England in the 18th century, it was horribly corrupt. Yeah. I mean, they had, you know, parliamentary boroughs where there's like one person living uh-huh. in it. Um, but over time, you you had middle classes in particular reach a certain level of prosperity. And they said, we don't want to put up with this. We want this to be a fair, you know, freer society. Um, so th- that has happened in the past, but it doesn't mean that it can't be undone. Yeah. And I think what's, what's happened is that we have... Um, undermined ourselves. And I, I don't mean everybody, but uh, our institutions are no longer trusted the way they used to be. There was a sense when I was growing up that you know, the FBI would always get their men. They would pursue the truth up until it didn't matter where it went. They would 
follow the path to justice. Nowadays, I don't think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, there's some great people in the FBI. I've worked with them. But the Department of Justice, the reputation has been really tarnished by the selective way that they've gone after people on the right and they've left people on the left alone, uh, essentially for political reasons, because they want to you know, get promoted and, and collect their pensions and, and go on to gigs on you know, NBC or whatever. Yes, so, let, me, let me strike a positive sure, note. Yeah. There's a book that uh, Simon references, the, the Coming Democratic Majority, 2002, by John Judas and Rui Teixeira. I actually, Rui Teixeira has recanted, so has John Judas, a lot of what they wrote, but, but, but really they couldn't have foreseen what happened. Now, I had, he left the Center for American Progress, a very lefty think tank in D.C., couldn't stand it there anymore. I went to, the, to American Enterprise Institute last year. I had lunch with Rui at AEI about six months ago. I had lunch with him at Heritage uh, more recently, and one thing he said to me is that he, what he couldn't have foreseen was how the left was going to go berserk with race and, 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 and sex mm. and gender and, 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 and say things and, and embrace positions that were going to be truly offensive yeah. to voters of, 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 of Latin American descent. And this is perhaps how you get 40% of so-called Hispanics voting for Trump, how you got, I saw a, a, um, a, an opinion poll today that Biden has the support of 37% of Hispanics, which is historically low. Uh, the, the Republicans are, are just a little bit below him. So it doesn't really augur very well for him. And, and this, t- so that ties in with the wokeness that we have been talking about. But I am very optimistic about this country for that reason and exactly. The American people have also woken up to this. I traveled the country extensively. In 2021, I visited 30 cities. Last year, I visited fewer cities. In 2022, I went to only 24 cities. Um, this year, I've gone to, in 23, I've gone to much fewer cities. I expect to travel again next year. I've been writing a book this year, so I stayed home more. Um, I, I think the American people have woken up to this. And this is why you have the, 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 the resistance to critical race theory, to gender theory, to all these radical agendas that the left has bizarrely embraced. And I, so I think that I'm very optimistic that America has woken up and is not going to put up with this anymore, any longer. No, I think, I think I agree. And I, and I see the same in Latin America. I think there's a wake up that's happening in Latin America because if uh, we are very, um, you know, we, we, we're, we're, if we're getting pushed past the envelope on these uh, issues such as gender and race and sex, Latin America is much more traditionalist than we are on, on those issues specifically. They don't like right. messing with their kids on these issues. Um, I, I, I certainly see the agendas being pushed in certain countries, but I don't see the embrace. I actually see the embrace bigger here in the United States than I did back down in Latin America. But then I also see the pushback that you're talking about from many communities. I remember the right. Armenians in California that were basically, they said, no, we're not going to do it in our neighborhood. Salvadorans in Montgomery County, Maryland. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I see that happening. So I want to start wrap this a little bit to end on a bit of an optimistic note. Um, you know, I think in the meeting in Miami, we had some signs of optimism, right? We had some some of the participants talked about faith-based networks and how they're starting to coalesce and bring together uh, uh, movements and networks that are p- pushing forth a more traditionalist message. Uh, we also had some countries uh, that were represented that, you know, looking to, to, to gain political power once again. Colombia has regional elections this year in October, um, and that's, you know, local mayors, governors, things like that. 
Um, Petro has been very unpopular. He's been a disaster. He has scandal after scandal. There's a Hunter Biden situation down in Columbus son, well, yeah. with Nicholas Petro. So they, he's written about it. Yeah, he did. He did a nice little, in the National <laughs> Review article, it actually kicks off with like, makes you kind of, kind of like a teaser, but it makes you think you're talking about Hunter Biden. And he's like, no, I'm talking about Nicholas Petro. And it's very similar. Very I mean, sneaky of you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good, it was a good intro. And, um, but there are signs of optimism. Um, I want to push back to you guys and say, what, what do you see? Signs of optimism, either something we talked about in Miami or do you see it somewhere else and maybe that in your own work that you're looking at in Latin America? Obviously, I'll have my uh, vote of optimism in Latin America and I'll talk about it at, at the end. But Simon, do you, what are you seeing any uh, rays of hope in, in, inside the Western Hemisphere, inside Latin America that will be important for the United States? Well, I remember uh, one session that we had uh, that, that uh, covered Peru. And it was, I don't remember the, the Spanish uh, translation, but it was essentially don't touch our kids. And it was a bunch of just regular people who probably work, you know, more than nine to five jobs or not rich, just struggling to make ends meet, who'd finally realized they'd woken up, you know, talk about woke to this gender ideology and what it really meant. And I run into people all the time who are highly educated, who absolutely have no idea the, the extremes of things like critical race theory and gender theory and you know, anything with a capital T theory. So the best remedy for leftism is try it, see what happens. And every time you find it, it ruins economies and it ruins societies. So I hope we don't have to go the Cuba route yeah. where we've got to live with it for, you know, 50 years before people get annoyed enough to, you know, maybe one day uh, overthrow it. Um, but in, in this one Peruvian example, you saw what you see in neighborhoods in, in Loudoun County and in California and parts of the States where Parents get organized, they get mad, they say, no, we, we do not want this ideology foisted on us. You can't teach our, our you know, third grade kids about deviant sexual practices and gender ideology until they're in grad school and we're not paying for it. So that proving example yeah. was a real I remember that, the video. Yeah. It was called No Te Metes Con Mis Niños, like, O Mis Hijos, No Te Metes Con Mis Hijos. That was a, that, that was a good, powerful video. And, and that campaign's working, it's still active. Uh, and I think they're going to rep, uh, replicate it in other countries in Latin America. Like, don't mess with my kids. So that was a good one. Mike, you got you got a sign of hope? Well, let's see what happens with Millet in Argentina. In Argentina. I yeah. mean, uh, he he reminds people of Trump in many, many, many ways, including the crazy hair. hair yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He does go crazy. He was like a Rolling Stones rock band or something. Yeah, he, was, he, was a, he was like Tantra or something. He was like very... I tell you, if Argentina goes with Millet, yeah. that kind of conservatism... Katie barred the door. Mm, yeah. Argentina is not a small country. That's not a, a small country. Uh, that's a powerhouse. Right. They were a powerhouse uh, many, many it years was, ago. It uh, was, well, a uh, hundred years ago, people didn't know which was going to be the most powerful country in the Western Hemisphere. And yeah. Then, yeah. And then they, they went the populist big government route and shot themselves in the foot and the head and everywhere else. <laughs> and shot some other people too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, so you stole mine. I'm actually up. Uh, bullish about Argentina. If I say my email traffic, I'm very bullish about Argentina because I was never optimistic about Guatemala because I saw themselves shooting each other in the foot. All I mean, the, the loss of that election didn't happen the night before election. It happened oh. months in advance. Yeah. When you mentioned, Mike, they were disqualifying candidates left and right looking for any reason. Uh, definitely not optimistic about Ecuador. Um, we'll see what happens. Not, we'll I'm see not. what happens. A little surprise, no, no I didn't expect that. But uh, <laughs> I just came back from that country. That country's in, they got... 14,000 different micro cartels. And that, you knew via Vicente. I did know. I knew, I knew Fernando Villa. We, we crossed paths. This is such a loss. Yeah, let, let me tell you a little about Fernando because it, it was interesting. He is not a politician. He's right. not even really a journalist. Some people catch him as a journalist. He was actually a syndicalista, which is like a union leader. Right. He, was, he comes from the left. 
he's an environmentalist as well. He comes to indigenous networks. But he started, when Rafael Correa became president in 2007, he started seeing this guy came with the message of anti-graft and all this other stuff, as you were mentioning. And then he did the exact opposite. He increased corruption. He attacked the environment. Like he's an environmentalist, but then he's signing deals with China that's basically destroying all the indigenous communities. So he got really upset and he turned all that energy that he had been used for like this militant left causes against Korea. And then Korea put the hammer on him and they, they first persecuted him for def defamation because he wrote about his cousin in these corruption scandals. And then he wrote about the China uh, corrupt deals between PetroChina and PetroEquador. And then that was the straw that brought the camels back. That was actually $5 billion worth of corruption that actually ended up with the Odebrecht case and uh, his vice president in jail. And then for that one, he had to leave the country. He had left the, he left the Peru. He's living there in exile. And then when Correa left in 2017, he came back. And so he's always been under some sense of threat. But I think that uh, things are changing, you know, and, and, and the message to me with the assassination of Villavicencio is that it's not safe to run for, I mean, if you're going to run to try to change the system, you're going to do it at high risk, at high risk. And I think this wasn't just a message to Ecuador. This is a message to Colombia, to Argentina. So I am optimistic about Argentina and I'll say real quick why. Uh, two reasons. One, because they have great topsoil. So I feel like if the world goes- a Fantastic they, topsoil. They have fantastic topsoil. Like, you know, and really at the end of the day, if you can't feed yourself, then you're going to be in trouble. But if you have the yeah. soil, so that's one. But the other is because, interestingly enough, Peronism, you know, Peronista, Peronism is so difficult to control that I don't feel like the Kirshneristas were ever, ever able to ever really control Peronism. So the Kirshneristas tried to branch off and become a version of radical leftist Peronism, and it didn't really work. They, she did create a following, but not strong enough to permanently control the country like they've done in Cuba, Venezuela, and other places. And the alignment that you're seeing with Malay, who's a libertarian candidate, but with other conservative networks. And he said something very smart early in his um, <laughs> campaign. He said, because he got criticized by a lot of libertarian friends, uh, because when he endorsed uh, Bolsonaro and Vox from Spain, and a lot of his more libertarian friends were saying, well, like Malay, those are fascists, they're ultra-right and things like that. And he said, listen, he said, who are they against? He said, they're against the socialists. If they're against the socialists, they're with me. And I was like, that guy's smart. Because yeah, the unity that that needed, that country needs, they don't have a millimeter of, of sunlight that they have to distance themselves if you're in the right of center networks. And I think he understood that. And actually him and Bullrich have had conversations. So if I, I feel like either one, like I said, they both moved to the second round. If Malay were to win the presidency, I see a scenario where he's going to tap into Boric's people for different ministries, such as the defense and intelligence security ministries, where he doesn't really have that expertise. His vice president is very solid, by the way, Victoria Villarreal. She comes from a security background. Because people, you know, they take it like a joke. He's a real economist. He's a serious economist. He understands uh, um, why the country's going through one of the worst inflations in the entire region. Um, and I, I, I feel bullish about it because, and if Argentina wins, if they flip, as, as Mike was mentioning, this is not just, you know, this is not, I'm not going to pick on uh, Haiti, yeah. but it's not, it's not, you know, Haiti or, you know, in some other small country in Latin America, this is a major powerhouse. And we lost that opportunity with Brazil. Right? We had a great opportunity with Brazil. We had President Bolsonaro, whatever people think about President Bolsonaro, he signed more agreements with the United States in one day than the previous four presidents combined. He was a great friend of the United States, still is a great friend of the United States, but unfortunately that country took a pivot 180 turn against. Uh, so I'm hoping Argentina flips. If Argentina flips, we have 2025 Chile. Uh, then 2026 is a repeat of 2021, I think, or 2022. 
uh, uh, Colombia, Peru, and all those countries. And so we can actually have it. But it also has to begin here at home. And I'm looking forward to 2024 uh, in the United States because, you know, we're having our own kind of radical leftist agenda. That's we'll see how the primaries go. We'll see how the primaries go. And, and we have this kind of thing here happening in the U.S. And I actually what I'm going to take away from here is actually I think what you said, Simon, which was that, you know, we, we for, forever thought that we we're going to be able to be the example for Latin Americans to follow. And it looks like it went the other way around. So I think that that's really a, and that's a good way to put it kind of like a mirror image, but any, any last thoughts or anything? And, and, and before we close out the podcast? No, not really. Uh, no, no, I'm good. I think that you, you, your closing thoughts were, were very good. Yeah. Simon. It's just great to have a, a somebody younger than me and someone just a tad <laughs> older than me, both be optimistic. Cause yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. my weak suit. So don't bet against America. A I guess tad older than him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, so let, let me end it with this because I think, you know, I, for those that don't know, I'm also now a visiting fellow at the heritage foundation. So I'm working with Mike, with Simon on various other projects, some that haven't been announced yet, but this meeting that we had in Miami, I thought it was a very special meeting. Uh, and Simon, you are being very modest because there's a lot of logistics and coordination that go into these things. And it's not easy. Well, to get that meeting could have gone very badly. No, there, I mean, I've, I've been at meetings. It's hard to get a bunch of Latin Americans or Latins to get in the room together and to be on time and punctual. And we did it. And we, well, they were, they were all your connections. So thank you <laughs> yeah, for that. <laughs> yeah. But even if I, if I tried to organize them, they all come late and things like that. So, but no, I thought that went well. Uh, I thought it was an amazing meeting. Uh, we're supposed to have another one in Texas in the near future. Uh, and the idea is to make it an annual thing, right? To have an annual uh, meeting ground where we're going to have two candidates. Uh, or can or we have two two groupings of of U.S. and Latin Americans come together, work out the linguistic differences. But in the end, and I think the the commonality that we have was very exemplified. So I thank you guys. It's an honor for me to be colleagues with you guys at Heritage to keep pushing this uh, this kind of uh, kind of these networks forward to allow them to have the power that they need to be able to to come into uh, permanent states of presence inside Latin America. So if, uh, if you're new to the podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you like this podcast, like the video, share it with your friends and colleagues. This is the season two of the Border Wars podcast. We're going to have other episodes that are going to come out in the near future. Let me thank Mike Gonzalez and Simon Hankinson for being with us. We're going to have other senior fellows from the Heritage Foundation, as well as other uh, leadership of the Heritage Foundation come on to the podcast in the near future. And you're going to start to see, hear more about this. There's other organizations that are involved as well. I mentioned the Texas Public Policy Foundation. That's a great group based out of Austin, Texas, but there's others in Latin America and even in Spain. Actually, I want to, at some point, Mike, well, maybe just right now real quick, just I'm getting a call from uh, Simon's driver. He's like, the limo is waiting for you, <laughs> sir. But just real quick on Spain, because- but One thing that you did say yeah. that I wanted to add, how Millet embraced Vox. If only some Spanish conservatives had had that foresight to embrace Vox instead of maligning it and demonizing Vox as they did during the election, and that's one of the reasons why they come up short- by, by four seats of an outright majority. And they're having very, now the king has just appointed the leader of the Partido Popular to try to form a government. We'll see if he's able to, he's going to have great difficulties doing that. If they had had the foresight that Millet had of embracing Vox, things could have gone very differently. Yeah, that's true. Spain, Spain was a bit of a heartbreak, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, guys, see you guys at the next Thanks. one. Bye. Yeah. Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.